Well, hello and welcome to Mariner with me, Chris Stanmore Major. Well, this week I'm going to go off in another direction. And I want to talk about something which I see very, very often in sailors, old and young, um, with lots of skill, with new skills, with new excitement, new enthusiasm, or old hands who have already done it all. And that is a very varied method of um, putting forward what you know about sailing or, or anything. We could also say that this attains to um, grammatical prowess, driving prowess, uh, your ability to fix up things in your house, whatever. But, you know, we hear about sailing, so let's bring it to sailing. There is a number of different people who are around sailing. They all have different kinds of personalities, different kinds of backgrounds. But I see always that there is a greater or lesser awareness of their own skill. And that's something that um, I'd like to talk about because I'm in a position now where I'm doing this online seamanship training. And it's fantastic because we've got a small community of people now that have come to this in the last week and they're starting to ask questions and they're starting to say, hey, you know, where did you get that from? How do you know that? And it starts to make me question how I know things, where I got them from, what's the veracity of the facts that I believe underlie things. And so I've started to question somewhat, you know, am I the right person to be talking about this stuff? So I did a little bit of digging, a little bit of research, and my background, I do actually have a degree in linguistics, would you believe? So there's some um, unusual aspects of psychology and human communication which have come across my bow during that education period, which is a long time ago now, and I was very bad at it, I might say, when I was um, at university. But it's something that's there, and it's of great interest to me because at its most benign, it's just someone who's a bit of a, um, you know, a purveyor of hot air. And at its most critical, it can lead people into errors which put uh, human life at risk. So let's let's discuss that. And for anybody that knows anything about this area, the phrase uh, Dunning-Kruger is not going to be a surprise here. The Dunning-Kruger effect is something which is very, very interesting. I've kind of talked about this a little bit in the past without naming it as such, but it's it's what we all know is that development process which people undergo when they're new to something. You you get involved in it, you suddenly discover there's a lot to be learnt, you start to absorb facts and, and get experiences and start to talk to people who are within that sphere and, and suddenly, wow, you've got all this information you didn't have before. And what can happen is that you start to get a very much inflated idea of where exactly you're at on the learning spectrum. So David Dunning and Justin Kruger wrote a paper in 1999. And I think the title of the paper almost explains like 100% what's going on. So their paper is called Unskilled and Unaware of It. How difficulties in recognizing one's own incompetence lead to inflated self-assessments. <laughs> well, there you go. So if someone's pointing at you and shouting at you and telling you that you are uh, uh, some kind of Dunning-Kruger uh, incompetent, then you know what it is exactly they're talking about. So what they're looking at is the fact that people can 
um, as they say, miscalibrate uh, their competence when they judge it against other people. Because to understand where they are at on the spectrum of learning, they actually need to have a lot more knowledge on the subject. So back in the day, what we would have said is, um, you don't know what you don't know. And uh, I think that if you've been involved in any kind of hard skills development, or if you've been a proper apprentice in something, this is something which hopefully you've passed through. But many people don't really develop uh, hard skills to a high level until they're older, and they maybe didn't go through a proper, what we'd say like indentured, proper, you know, legalized apprenticeship process where at the end of it you are certified and signed off to do something. So back in the day, you'd be an indentured uh, apprentice in engineering or something like that. And that this then would mean that you had this contract. And if you're interested, okay, so we've got to make sure at all points that we explain ourselves completely. Indentured literally, as far as I know, relates to a document which would be made up between the person who was the mentor and the person who was the apprentice. And the top half of it would be the responsibilities of the um the mentor and the bottom half of it would be the legal responsibilities um, of the of the apprentice. Now, that document then would be uh, torn apart or, or cut apart with a scalloped kind of edge on it so that there was never any debate or doubt that that was the contract that the two signed. When those two pieces came back together, we're literally talking paper here, when they came back together and those teeth of the paper, those those dentures, those those dentistry like things at the top and bottom of these pieces of paper, when that came back together again, like, you know, gears on a cog, it would show absolutely that these two pieces of paper were uh, one and the same and that therefore this contract was between these two people. So I know my brother, when I was younger, he had some older paperwork hanging on the wall. And I always wondered why the top of it was all that kind of weird bitten out kind of uh, look to it. Well, I, I guess what would have happened is that that piece of paperwork in its day would have been part of a, a pair. So indentured apprenticeship would mean that you literally, you know, you were off to do this job, you would give your labor, you would learn and that the mentor would then agree to teach you things until you got to a certain level. And maybe there's an exchange of money or you're paying to be there or they're paying you to be there, whatever it is. But indentured things might be engineers. I think it was like plumbing and things in the day and and um, cabinet making and all sorts of things where this skill was going to be handed over. And the nature of apprenticeships was such that it was very, very clear who was in charge and what scale their knowledge was at and what scale the knowledge of the apprentice was at. The master carpenter or the master engineer or the toolsmith or whatever it was, they would be licensed, experienced, um, they may well hold a position within a factory or some kind of organization. And it was absolutely clear to everyone concerned, not least the apprentice, exactly where the apprentice was at. We also get this in, in things where you're developing hard skills. There are lots of wonderful, wonderful tales of people stepping into various sports activities and musical activities and, I don't know, mathematics and all sorts of things where they just like are prodigies. They just know how to do it and they can just set off at a, a crazy rate with 
this particular pursuit or sport. But those stories are very, very far flung. <laughs> there's, there's not many like whitewater kayakers who just, you know, they just knew how to run class four rapids on the first day. No, they have to develop things. And what happens if we go back to the um, Dunning-Kruger effect is that your level of competence starts to rise but it is disproportionately overshadowed by your belief in how good you are at this thing until we get to some point where something bad happens and then either you know things are damaged, things are broken, people are hurt, your confidence is bashed in, whatever it is, and then your confidence in yourself slumps and then over time as wisdom and awareness uh, starts to increase your level of competence rises and when it rises it rises with the knowledge of just how broad and how deep and how rich this subject or this skill or this industry is so to draw out the uh, kruger dunning uh, effect sorry the, the dunning kruger effect beg your pardon uh in uh, in, in a graphical thing you'd have time on a graph going across the bottom and you have competence going up the left hand uh, side of it and then you'd have this little graph as a very steep climb at the beginning which i see some places they've called mount stupid <laughs> so you develop skills and you climb mount stupid and then something happens and over time your feeling of competence slumps massively and then you have a much gentler curve a learning curve as you come up now, what's interesting about this is that let's let's bring it back to um, bring it back to sailing. So there's a couple of things that go with this. This um, effect incorporates a couple of things. First of them is illusionary superiority. So this idea that you have this superiority in something, and that can lead to people exhibiting very particular characteristics when they get going on a subject and we've all met that person or if you have a quiet moment to yourself maybe you are that person but the, the what can characterize um, somebody with illusionary superiority is the fact that they are new to a subject or they're relatively inexperienced and that they are talking or acting in a way as though they are way ahead of the field now there are some other um assessments and some other reports and some other studies that's the word i want some other studies here that come into this which give us some idea of um this thing illusionary superiority and how it manifests itself now two other researchers galadi and clark put forward this idea that self versus aggregate and that is that if you interview someone and ask them something like you know how's your driving it's very, very likely that they're going to say that they have an above average ability at driving. It's something we all do. We've all had our uh, unique experiences and we would all say that we are above average in this skill. What's interesting, though, is that if you interview the group, a larger cross section of the population, all of them have some opinion. Well, not all, maybe, but a lot of them have an opinion that they have an above average ability in this skill set, which means that you have what a, a group which places itself above the median, and yet the median is the collective average of the group's uh, actual ability. So everybody's above average. So 
Hmm. Okay, that's one idea. That's called the self versus aggregate uh, idea. And the other one, there's quite a few different kind of responses to this, but the other one is selective recruitment, which is that we have naturally a kind of optimistic bias that we're going to try and um, pick things which make us seem very positive compared to other people. And that um, amongst your peers, you're going to select targets that you can uh, say to yourself, I'm good at that. And you're going to kind of step over the ones where you're not so good at it. Perloff and Fetzer in 86 suggests that um, with these, these comparisons being made in the group, um, you, you can actually kind of shortcut and reveal the system by the fact that you can get people to rate their friends and they would then you know, want to be positive and they'd say, my friend is above average. And then they rate, then say, okay, well, rate yourself. And then they would say, oh, well, I'm not as good as my friend. But then it goes the other way, of course. And you'd say, well, rate this person who you don't know. You'd say, well, okay, I'm better than them. So you have this weird kind of statistical soup where people would put forward others and yet say that they have skills which are above the average. And you have this situation where we are naturally prone to kind of pushing aside the things that we don't want to recognize that we are no good at. So this noisy kind of psychological situation we're in, we have to start to recognize in ourselves and in others around us that people may be well, let's let's bake it down without uh, using four letter words. They may be full of crap. <laughs> OK, now the thing here is that if this is working well, then our immediate mental process is to think of all those people, you know, who are definitely full of crap. But this process must be inherently part of all of us, <laughs> which means that uh, we're all full of crap as well. There are things that we don't know much about. And I think that's coming back to where this process started for me. I'm looking at this situation now of teaching these seamanship courses and I'm thinking, do I really know this? Is this something I normally like uh, think of myself? Well, no, because I go off and do things where I'm teaching people and I'm out on the water all the time. But suddenly when you're you know, researching things and editing video and listening to your own voice going over and over things and checking facts and you can really start to doubt yourself. Now, that is interesting because that puts me in something called the imposter syndrome. Okay, so the imposter syndrome on that graph of the Dunning-Kruger effect, that big steep uh, Mount Stupid at the front of the uh, graph and then the big slump afterwards, the, the self-confidence over time goes down and then rises back up as, as time passes and you learn more about it. Somewhere down below that graph on the right hand side is someone who's had a lot of time doing it but doesn't feel very confident now i am not in any way saying that you know i need any sympathy here this is on a moment to moment basis as i start to be self-critical and start to question okay you know from whence does this information come and do i actually know this stuff because i think that then i can present it in in a way and i had to write this for a couple of titles of one of the i was just doing a video about um reefing lines and the bowlines that are used in reefing lines and the alignment of them all this kind of stuff and i was taught um by you know my, my lineage i was taught by like master riggers who had then gone through apprenticeships on not uh, sailing vessels but they would have been taught by people that were on sailing vessels so i was taught by people who were taught by folk that were on 
commercial sailing vessels that went stopped being operational in the 20s and 30s and these people were then in their 50s and 60s teaching apprentices in the 50s and 60s and they were teaching them stuff and then I was picking that up from them those people so to give a lineage like when I'm saying it's done this way or that way with stuff to do with say tall ships there's very little distance between my my knowledge and practitioners who are doing this every day what I guess I'm saying is I didn't just pick it up from books or from YouTube or make it up myself and then kind of rebrand it as uh, whatever when I started to dig into things, it's like, okay, I know where this has come from. But it started to reveal in me this idea of, you know, where do we get our information from? And how do we know that what we are spouting as fact is fact? Now, the thing that I'm very aware of, uh, I actually did a, a this video about these Bolins on the boom. And then um, one of the patrons on patreon uh came back and said oh you use bolins in this situation we always you all use timber hitches at my my club and i'm sure he won't mind me uh uh, mentioning uh, that here but you know i had to kind of respond and i responded at length as to why you know you'd use a bolin and not a timber hitch and afterwards i sort of sat back and thought man that was a bit of a kind of like (laughs) landslide of stuff i'm like trying to justify myself but there were some pertinent points. You know, timber hitch relies on the spar itself for friction. If it's in a long-term exposure to flogging and, uh, and and shaking around and not under tension, a timber hitch can come undone. A bowline is stable onto itself, and uh, if dressed correctly and tightened down, and maybe a some kind of locking mechanism used in the in the bowline, um, it won't come undone. However much you flog it. But then the timber hitch is used because it positions and keeps the the uh, end of the reef line in one particular position on the boom, uh, whereas the bowling can slide around. So it doesn't really matter because that's just, you know, it's discussion between people. And I was talking to this guy, Dave, via email, and we were discussing it. And, you know, he certainly didn't have any, uh, any, any problems about hearing this other side of the coin. And I didn't have any uh, problems saying, you know, use whatever's good for you. But ultimately... There are circumstances with that kind of uh, usage where one would fail and the other wouldn't. But is it something I need to be like bleating on about? Is it such a big deal? No, it's not. And that that led me to my second point here, which is that as I was coming up through sailing, I can remember coming across people who were very, very kind of territorial about their knowledge, what I call the like the little Napoleon syndrome. And they would be, no, this is the way it's done. And this is only the way it's done. And it can't be done any other way. And as I went on with my career and, you know, I ended up doing lots of mileage and having lots of experience and being exposed to lots and lots of different mentors, um, I came back uh, metaphorically and, and geographically to these people who had only accumulated a little bit more experience and a little bit more knowledge. They just continued to do their club sailing for, you know, another five or six years where I'd been off doing God knows what. And uh, they were still spouting the same stuff with the same vehemency. And yet I knew for a fact that what they were saying was wrong. And I started kind of stroking my metaphorical beard (laughs) and thinking, why is this person so like um, married to this this thought process? And it, it led me to realize that people end up like... It's almost political. It's almost like political parties. If, in, if you're in the United States in North America, the, the split between the Democrats and the Republicans is, is you know, very well known. And I, I am not a political person. I don't know anything about it. But I do recognize this. 
I do recognise that for the process of democracy to move forward, flawed or not, both parties must exist. <laughs> so this kind of thing where everyone's like, no, they're wrong, they're all idiots, they need to be removed from office and all of that is all hot air and in the wind because ultimately <laughs> both have to exist or some opposition must exist. Otherwise, it's a, well, it's an autocracy, isn't it? It's an autocratic, uh, like, tyranny, <laughs> so, or dictatorship, certainly. So both must exist. And um, Derek Hatfield, who I worked with for a while, he always used to say there's five ways of doing everything. And I think that was a very, very wise way to look at things. There is, you could put a bowling in your reef line, you could put a timber hitch in your reef line. It doesn't really matter. There is a point when you're in the dark, you haven't actually been eyes on with the hitch in, you know, three or four days. A storm's coming. You're shaking a, oh, not shaking a reef out. So you're putting a reef in. And I think that personally, I'd like to know that it's a bowline at the end of the reef line because I know it's stable onto itself and I'm not dealing with a hitch that is stable only when it remains in friction with the boom. You know, the clue's in the name. It's a timber hitch. It's for dragging uh, bundles of, of tree poles or branches or tree trunks around swinging them up on a crane and dropping them off. It's designed to be tied quickly. It's designed to work in a particular method. But the people that tied it never intended for it to be like the, uh, the reef line hitch. And the sailors from back in the day absolutely knew about this thing and didn't use it. So there's a logic there, but most of the time it doesn't matter. So I don't need to get on my high horse about, well, oh, these guys use this thing, no problem at all, okay? So I think the upshot of this is that I started to realize very early on in my career that people who have been through some kind of apprenticeship system, people who have been uh, in the process of learning a hard skill can often bring to the story a new appreciation and a, and a better way of looking at things because they have climbed Mount Stupid. Actually, I'm starting to like that, uh, that way of referring to it. They have developed a lot of confidence in a particular area. They've had that knocked down and then they've restarted from the bottom. And that learning process really allows you to come at new learning situations with an altered self-perception. And that thing we were talking about of the uh, illusionary superiority, it does get pushed down a bit in people who have got a lot of experience um, with a particular hard skill area, like sailing, something like that. Although, of course, I'm still the best driver there is. But, you know, sailing, I'm willing to be humble. You're right. So, yeah, I think that's something very interesting. Where are you getting information from? It's also a, a discussion to be said uh, about the, where do we get information from? And I, I'm not in, I, I'm the one doing the questioning here. I'm not trying to put myself forward as like some authority on anything because having researched this and looked into it and kind of reviewed myself, I'm looking at this thing at the moment of going west around the world, right? I have to bring it up once every uh, podcast. But I've got this little desk set up in the barn now and I've got, all of the information I have, the polars about the boat, the design about the boat. Then I've got the stuff from Sparta, my other Open 60 I took around the world, and I'm comparing the two, and I've got my logbook. And, I'm, and I realize that what I'm trying to do is I really, really want to succeed in this. So I'm having to get into a method of looking at this that recognizes that last time I went and did something like this, I wasn't very good at it. Let's be honest, the only reason I was in the Velux 5 Oceans race is because there were hardly any other competitors in it. 
that this clever thing I did was position myself in such a way that that opportunity came to me. Obviously, I'd already sailed around the world. I was already, you know, skilled in this area. But realistically, I am happy to admit that I got into that situation not because of basic skill in that area. And then as you if you've been listening to the podcasts about me going down the Atlantic, you know, I had my Kruger Dunning, uh, sorry, Dunning Kruger moment <laughs> where I God, I keep thinking it's Kruger Dunning. I'm not sure why that is. Anyway, my Dunning Kruger moment, my DK moment when I was off the Canary Islands, I can remember standing on the back of the boat and it must be in like whichever one of these podcasts deals with me going out of the start line that's quite early on is it maybe that's like number three or something but out of france and then down towards the canary islands and i can remember i very nearly crashed into the canary islands because i fell asleep and the boat basically drove itself between the islands and then when i came up on deck and stood there and the boat was fine and we hadn't hit the island and everything i thought i've got this cracked i've got, you know that's it basically <laughs> the universe wants me i am so damn good at this that even though, and halfway through the conversation to myself, a massive catabatic gust came down uh, off of Fuerteventura, knocked the boat on its side, knocked me on my ass, and I had my Dunning-Kruger moment right there and then, where everything went completely nuts. And I think one of the Mariner videos is, you know, what what happens on Open 60 when everything goes wrong, whatever it is. The boat's every which way, and I was seriously shaken physically by that. But the crushing effects of um, realizing that I didn't know what I was doing and that I was in a very dangerous situation. I remember after that thinking, surely a responsible adult should have stopped me from coming and doing this. Like, you know, (laughs) people don't let me run with scissors. Surely maybe my mother, my mother should have stopped me from coming and doing this because I just suddenly got this awareness of like how vast the amount of knowledge was that I needed to do this thing. So I think I've had those moments and, you know, I learned as I went along. It's not like um, that was it. That's the end of the story. I did keep going. I did keep learning. And, uh, you know, I kind of sort of got it together at the end. But I very much was aware then of the skill of the other people that were in the race and the vast amount of knowledge they had and how far behind I was in it. And I think that's really colored my um, self-confidence for a long time afterwards when I got back from that race, you know, physiologically, uh, psychologically, emotionally, I was I was knocked back anyway. And I went to Hong Kong where I had planned to live and I that's where I was going and I went and did it. And I went and worked as a technician, like um, commissioning Benetos and, and repairing things on super yachts and what have you for a super yacht agency there. And, you know, I was able to do it, but I just needed to be in like this safe place where I could kind of not push myself and I think it's still because I'd had this massive pushback and 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 failure of of realizing that I didn't know what I was doing so as I now look towards this new challenge and this this option to go and sail around the world you know I'm looking at it like who's gone west well the first person to go west was Joshua Slocum I actually didn't realize that until I did the uh, podcast the other day when we were talking about Joshua Slocum as one of my heroes and i didn't realize that his uh trip was west i you know i read the book through years ago i've gone back and read chapters of it but i never like stitched together the fact that oh yeah those things go in that order and not (laughs) so he went and did it uh solo um in the late 1800s and then the next person is sir shay blythe you know these are not like (laughs) these are not like people from nowhere in sailing 
And then Sanders, who did a triple non-stop solo circumnavigation, like, well, God, it's, he didn't get a record or anything, but it's pretty impressive. It was like 600-odd days at sea. And then Mike Golding, one of the pillars of British offshore sailing. Dee Kafari, another pillar of offshore sailing. Vendee Globe, Volvo, you name it. And then you've got... Um, Philippe Monet, I don't know too much about Philippe Monet's background. He's actually somebody I'm starting to learn more about because I uh, want to know what he did and how he did it because he did it in Open 60, which I'm planning to do. And then Jean-Luc Vandenheed, who, you know, is another colossus of sailing. So as I go into this, I have to recognize of the people that have successfully completed this journey before me, solo, nonstop, these are not just like some folk from the yacht club <laughs> this is these are like people who really know what they're doing and many other people who really know what they're doing have been unsuccessful so every single element of what i'm doing now has to be done through the lens of knowing okay number one you may be suffering from imposter syndrome here and that you know you do know how to sail this kind of boat um, so don't let your confidence be too knocked back because then nothing good is going to happen because you know you, the meek and the mild are not really going to be very useful stepping up to what's going on here you have to have a, a belief in who you are and what you're doing and there's an interesting uh, report we can look at about that but um then the other thing is that you don't also want to step off on the wrong side of this dunning-kruger effect where you are then you know oh, i'll just grab a boat and off i go and it's all going to be fine and because it's probably not. <laughs> You're probably going to make a massive mess of it. So, you know, this thing for me will start in November. And that's what brought all this to mind now is I've, I've sat down and like every day I'm sitting down and I'm starting to compare figures and compare notes and look at how things are set up because there has to be that behind any kind of uh, expert in anything, behind any kind of a mentor in anything before anybody learns from somebody or, or anybody steps off into anything that's a, a big deal, you have to know, okay, where does your knowledge come from? Or where does this person's knowledge come from? What is the veracity of these claims? What's the veracity of your own claims in something? Like there are plenty of stories of people setting off in boats and then having a disastrous time ending up in, you know, mortal danger because they have wildly overestimated their own abilities. So as I say, one other thing that this occurs to me, uh, that, sorry, one other thing that occurs to me when I think of this is the fact that with the rise of YouTube and online media and the rest of that stuff, it's an incredible preponderance of people who are giving out information who, who don't really meet up with the idea of uh, uh, being a mentor or being uh, an expert in something. In Malcolm Gladwell's book, uh, the Outliers, he introduced to the general population this idea that 10,000 hours doing something would make you an expert in it. And that at that level of awareness and at that level of skill, you could take a kind of a slice, just take a, an instantaneous cold slice judgment about something and on the whole, be correct about it that you could just look at a situation and know what's going on. He gives some wonderful examples. I think one of them at the beginning is about a sculpture, which is has been bought for millions of dollars. And all these experts have looked at it. They've all decided, absolutely, this is definitely uh, by this uh, master and it's an unknown piece and therefore it's worth millions. And then once it's bought, the museum brings in this guy who's like a top, top expert um, who wasn't available before. And he looks at it once and says, it's not by this master. And they're like, oh, 
and it prompts a massive investigation and indeed he's correct and he was able to just make that judgment in a second and he was correct now again it's uh, an it's not an apocryphal story it's 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 a true story that gladwell got it from you know first hand sources but it is a, a rare story it's not that people can do that all the time it's wonderful when you're with people like that or when you're getting information from people like that and they just know their craft so well and i don't actually mean boat craft here i mean like the craft of the skill whatever it might be that they're around but they know it so well that they just know how things go i was actually tutored early on in sailing when i was on jifung in hong kong by a guy called donald tan and um his uh <laughs> he was a barrel-chested singaporean of about 50 years who had been a merchant seaman before and he uh he had a wonderful round bass voice good morning mr major that's a very bad impression of him <laughs> he would always start the day with a joke so he'd tell you a joke um and then he'd come to the punchline which he would give amongst peals of deep resonant laughter and uh, you'd get a kick out that's cool that's the beginning of the day with donald right but then, you see, it was the gift that kept on giving because then what he'd do is every time he walked past you on the deck for the rest of the day, he would repeat the punchline and they all died of oompa loompa. <laughs> and he would then just... So this joke, which was told once in the morning, was then you'd heard it like the punchline eight times by the end of the day. <laughs> and then you just had to wait for the next day until you get repetitions of the next one. But he had some amazing stories. Um, I'll give you... Uh, give you I'll give you one, which I would say is a as a proper sailor story, and then uh, we'll, then that's the side of him which was the tail spinner, uh, rather than the um, technical master. But one of his stories was that they were delivering a ship from, I think it was Korea, down the South China Sea, through the Taiwan Straits, and heading for Singapore. And uh, they were in a very big storm. Now the Straits of um, Taiwan, between the mainland Chinese coast and the island of Taiwan is a terrible, terrible funnel. So you have this thing called the Northeast Monsoon that blows through the winter, and it blows hard for like two weeks. You know, it's blowing 35, 45 knots, like true wind speed, and it's uh, coming in off the Pacific, which is, you know, a thousand miles wide, and it's coming into the Taiwan Straits, which are like 200 miles wide. And on either side, on the Chinese mainland and on the uh, island of Taiwan, there are mountains which are 4,000 meters high. So it's getting like super narrow in there. And then the water in some areas of the, it gets very, very shallow in the, in the Taiwan Straits, but down to the point where in some places it's like less than 100 meters after, you know, these huge waves have been produced in massive fetch off of the northeast uh, corner of the Taiwan Straits in the Pacific. So everything's getting funneled, funneled, funneled in there. And then if you are silly enough, which I've done a few times, to try and go out and go around the outside of the um, Straits of Taiwan to go down the eastern side of the island of Taiwan, then that puts you in the Kurio Shio, the black current. This is where all your big pelagic tuna and sailfish and sharks are all running. There's warm water current that comes up from the Philippines and then out along the side of Japan and out into the Pacific. I've gone into that in a 200-ton sailing ship and the bow literally peels off as you're going out to the east the bow just peels off to the north as like putting a kayak into a river or, or setting off in a ferry from the from the riverbank you're literally like ferry gliding a 200 ton ship to to try and 
maintain uh, the course while you cross this thing. It's like going out into the channel in the in in Europe when the tide's really running, right? But it's in the middle of the <laughs> in the middle of the ocean. So when you're dealing with the Kuroshio and the northeast monsoon, it can be very very rough on the east coast of Japan. And if you're on the inside of Taiwan in the Straits, it's very, very rough. Okay, so Donald Tam, my mentor, the Singaporean guy I learned some of my seamanship, well, a lot of seamanship from, an attitude to seamanship from, he's telling me this story one day that uh, they are coming down the Taiwan Straits in this new ship. Now, when Donald's talking about a ship, he's probably talking about the 1970s, something like that, 80s maybe. I'd be getting this story off him in 96, 97. So it'd be in his career before Outward Bound. So I'd say like 70s, 80s. He's a young uh, watch uh, leader at this point, uh, a watch officer. So they're coming out. It's very, very heavy uh, conditions, very heavy. Almost can't see anything out the bridge windows. It's got a few lights on inside the bridge. And um, he's, he's on watch on his own, which is not that uncommon, right? So he's looking out the windows, he's trying to see what he can see, but it's just sleeting rain and then a few white tops and the ship's rolling and bucking. And suddenly, on the starboard side of his vessel, out of the starboard windows of the bridge, he sees the bow of another ship. And this ship is close, like crazy close, like it's coming down the starboard side of their ship. And there's less than 100 feet between the two ships they're parallel but on completely reciprocal courses and oh my god this thing is so close like it's all gonna what so he hits the alarm all the bells start ringing he grabs the binoculars he looks out at the bow of this other ship and looks at the name and realizes (laughs) so goes the story that this other ship has got the same name as his ship which is the exact moment he realized that the front of his ship had snapped off and had now come down the starboard side of his vessel and was slowly sinking <laughs> as it went off into the night. Oh my God. So now Donald would tell this, of course, and he'd be sounding like Pavarotti as you're telling it. But um, what ensued, if I can remember correctly how all these different stories came together, is the fact that their ship started to break up and sank. And then he and his crew ended up in a life raft. And one of the other stories I do remember from that is the fact that they were very, very low on food. So what they did is they put some crumbs, so goes his story, crumbs on the roof of the life raft and then held on to like some part of the inside of the roof of the life raft. And when a seagull landed on it, they pulled down on the roof of the life raft, collapsing the seagull in, and then, well, survival tactics and instincts kicked in. And let's just say that the seagull did not make it. But I don't know if any of that's true. But (laughs) this person telling this story uh, is also the person who, for me, gave me a clear vision of what a true mentor and a true encyclopedia should be like and he would tell me to do something and because i was a young buck now i told you before when i was on that ship um i can remember the the chief mate uh steve burton giving me my uh um my staff review (laughs) and at that time i had this nickname mick and uh i seem to remember that the constructive part of it in Outward Bound you couldn't like be negative to people you'd you'd be giving them feedback and constructive feedback you wouldn't say you were critiquing someone so the the constructive feedback was that Mick seems to Mick has only been on the ship for six months but 
seems to think he knows everything. Okay, and then the positive feedback was Mick has only been on the ship for six months and seems to know everything. So <laughs> in there was another kind of warning to me about Mount Stupid, I think. Um, but also maybe a little endorsement of the fact that I, I was picking stuff up and learning stuff, but you know, uh, a failure was coming if I kept acting that way. But Donald, and Steve actually in a way, but I will keep it around Donald now, but um, I was very lucky. I had some wonderful mentors like X, Steve's ex-Navy, ex-Submariner, if I remember correctly, uh, Ocean Master Instructor, like the captain of the ship was a very experienced um, commercial mariner and a uh, sail training ship uh, captain. It's not that he'd just kind of come in from the merchant world. He actually knew sail training ships. But Donald is the one I want to talk about. And what would happen is that I, as a young buck, had an idea or two about like how things should be done. So Donald would tell me, like, I don't know, which knot I had to tie onto the rescue boat that we were towing behind the ship. And I would say, well, no, 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 I think we should do this and this. And he'd say, Mr. Major, I will bet you a thousand to one that what I have told you is correct. And I leave you to decide what you should do with that information. And then he'd walk off, right? So then he was saying, well, if you want to try your thing, then you try your thing. But I've told you once it won't work, but you try your thing. Now, when I left out with Bound, <laughs> as far as I remember, I think I owed him like $50,000 or more. Like it was like $50,003. $50, like there was some crazy amount of money, which I had, uh, unfortunately, I'd lost enough times that um, I'd got a couple of victories, maybe, that what I did did hold together. But he pointed out to me the fact that he had certainty about his knowledge. He had history in his knowledge, and he had uh, a background which spoke to the fact that his knowledge was the way things are done. Now, we live in a world where there are lots of different opinions, and there's lots of different stuff being spouted from all sorts of different media sources, and it's very easy to get the idea that uh, there's plenty different ways of doing everything. And as Derek used to say, there are five ways of doing things, little things. <laughs> there are some other things in another set, which is mutually exclusive from the you can do whatever you want set, where you just have to do it that way. Otherwise, bad things happen. Like you can't miss creating a stable, honest, well-researched, well-documented passage plan before setting off on some major journey. I, I, an article was done about me recently which said that I, I set off on a transatlantic voyage with the same casual style that someone would have uh, going shopping at Walmart or something, which uh, I know Christian that wrote that was not in any way trying to imply that I... Um, didn't take care about things. He's talking about the fact that I was relaxed, which is good. But it is not the fact that you then start to do less and, and actually discontinue the good practices you had before, because that's when disaster comes. That's when you can end up in a situation where you have illusionary superiority, where you get pushed into that by the fact that you do know more than other people around you in the group that you're in. And then you can start to, well, believe your own press, I think is the other way of putting that, right? So um, I'm very interested by the idea of trying to walk the line. Um, I think narcissism would be something that would come into this, uh, where people just believe they're way better than everybody else. I don't think it's that exactly. I think what it is, it's a 
cognitive fallacy where you haven't had this what we call metacognition, this ability to look at how you think and realize what's going on. But the, we have a number of these fallacies that kind of develop within us without us double checking them. So I think what I'm getting down to all this is that we need to understand where our information is coming from. We need to make sure that we don't fall into the trap of having illusionary superiority, that we don't get tribal about things like it's this way and not that way. And that we are clearly aware of where we're at on Mount Stupid. <laughs> I'm going to definitely use that. This Mount Stupid thing of are we learning or are we, uh, are we learning and we've had a bad experience? Are we learning and we're aware that we could have a bad experience so we're trying to avoid it? Or are we just blindly jumping into this? I sailed with a young sailor recently who's got lots and lots of skills. And um, we were out at night on a, a Volvo 70. I hope he doesn't mind me putting this in but um i was telling him to watch he trimmed the mainsail at night and then said to me that that's better or, or something along these lines i said well how do you know it's better and he said oh yeah i know this i know this boat really well said, okay but the only actual the only definition of a trim that works is that the boat goes faster <laughs> like i this is one area of sailing which i'm constantly befuddled by if someone trims something, it has to be for a particular reason. And if nothing good comes of it, <laughs> then it didn't work. <laughs> so what you need to do next is like undo it, I would say. is that I sail with lots of people in Hong Kong um, at the beginning of my sailing who had this idea. For me, this kind of like they were the pro crews. They knew what they were doing and they'd be doing all these different things. And I was just, you know clueless i was working on a traditional tall ship i didn't know anything about yacht racing or anything else and um what they did was just what gets done on a boat it was only years and years later that i came back and working with people like um jack young and and fletch and realizing okay these guys really really know what they're doing and you know a good group of other people amongst them but in amongst these people are other folk who have no clue what they're doing <laughs> who are just doing stuff and like they're just kind of like wibbling and wobbling around in there, like doing what other people do so they can be part of this group, but still spouting knowledge with the same uh, great uh, enthusiasm and, 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 and bearing that would lead you to believe that they really knew what was going on. And it's only when people were doing stuff and you'd say, OK, where, you know, why have you done that? And they'd be able to explain exactly why they'd done it and you could see the results. So I was trying to get this through to this young sailor who is you know, got so many good things going for him and is on such a stellar ascent in his career that uh, he won't mind um, me, me pointing out something which is important that we all know. But um, I said, uh, well, you know, it has, has it increased the speed of the boat? And he said, oh, I don't never look at the instruments. I said, oh, OK, what? How do you know? He said, no, I don't I don't use them. I don't I don't think they're necessary. <laughs> so I said, oh, well, that's funny because, um, you know, all these big race boats put so much money into the instruments. He said, yeah, well, you've got to feel the boat. You know, you've got to feel it underneath you and you've got to understand the boat. and You've got to be on it and then you'll you'll know. I'm like, uh, OK, well, then what happens if it's late at night and there's watch changes and you're trying to like, you know, get to the details of a thing? Surely it's better to have these set values and this set understanding of the performance of the boat. And then you can use the instruments to make sure you're hitting that. Oh, no, no, no. He said, no, 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 it's uh that, that stuff's not for me. 
So I thought, okay, well, <laughs> let's see how that goes. So um, these kind of illusions um, can be part of this ascent into sailing. But if you're on the wrong side of this, where you don't know where someone's real background comes from and their actual skill level, it's all too easy to get information from um, sources, which may not necessarily be that fantastic. So um, connected to this is, is I think it's connected. <clears throat> I think it's connected. And this is the thing of, of uh, critical eye and assessing things. And I think it is connected because people will give you this kind of like cold slice judgment, like this is what's going on. And a lot of it comes from the fact of their assessment of what's going on, their knowledge of what's going on, and their observational skills of what's going on. I think it's something we need to discuss and we need to be aware of because in sailing, it is really, really critical to understand these mental processes because they can be uh, a real barrier between the boat's operation and and safety sometimes. <laughs> they are the barrier between normal operations and being safe. They can create the problem. Okay, so the other thing I want to uh, touch on then is uh, the idea of your visual acuity versus your visual perception and the way that the brain is interpreting what's coming in, okay? So visual acuity is literally, can you see something or not? I remember sailing with a, uh, <laughs> sailing with a sailor who, when I was on the clipper boat, uh, as I stand at the wheel, to my left is the main sheet trimmer on the clipper 68. And I had this person on this job for five days, and it was a very, very complicated uh, interactive processes with this person until in the end, frustrated, shouting at me above the wind. He said, you're going to have to shout up because I'm deaf in my right ear. <laughs> it's like, what? Then why the hell are you the main sheet trimmer relying on your right ear to hear what's being shouted at you from the helm position? Like, okay, no problem at all. So we take him then. I think his name was Alan. <laughs> Hello, Alan. We take him, we put him into the pit, you know, into the where all the lines are coming in through the clutches and jammers, controlling all the different things on the boat. But that also seems to be an area which really frustrates him. And people are frustrated with him. And about five days later, I go up there when there's another like Mexican standoff going on. And I say, what is going on here? He says, I don't know why you people have such a problem with me. I'm colorblind, all right? That's the issue. I'm like, oh my Lord, then why are you in the place where all the different colored stuff? So visual acuity and sensory acuity is very, very important. And your ability to understand what you're seeing can first and foremost be limited by just the mechanical operation of your eyes, of your ears, of you know your ability to interpret the environment around you. So that layer of things is easy to understand. But next down from that, or, or, or maybe like next step up in the pyramid, what's the best way of visualizing this? I don't know. But the next part of this processing system is how the brain works and how the brain interprets what's going on around it. And certainly when I did my study, one area that we looked at in you know, describing situations in prose, in, in literary discourse, is this thing of the schema, the idea that things within a particular cognitive kind of area all gelling together can be described as a schema. So a schema for a bathroom would include a toilet and, and faucets and um, towels and a bath and a shower and 
you know, all that kind of stuff. So you can imagine that if there's a book and it's got something they describing a bathroom and those elements are in there, then okay, it's all normal. But then if the writer describes the fact that there was a giant cactus in the corner of the bathroom, that would be slightly odd, right? And you'd start to have something out of the ordinary. So on board boat, there are a number of uh, schemas for what's going on inside our minds. Our mind is kind of like clustering things together and grouping things, and it's expecting certain things. There is a lot of evidence to show that um, our visual perception of what's going on around us, it's so rich, there's so much information that a lot of what we see uh, is actually the brain throwing in what it knows should be in the schema of that area, that room. So this is why the police now are starting to accept less and less eyewitness testimony over things because it is too easy for the brain to overlay things onto memory, to have overlaid things onto what was actually seen at the time. And our interpretation of events is often based on our schema. Okay. And that, that brings up something which I'll just jump back to the, <laughs> oh, quick tangent, but it's a tangent that goes back to where I was. Excuse me while I interrupt myself. I think that is important. Cultural norms. It's very important in the in the Dunning-Kruger effect, and that's been shown. The original experiments or, or, or research, rather, was done in America, and so a cultural norm sh- may be showing itself from the fact that most of the people that this research has been done on were from one particular population, right? Now, it's a very diverse country, obviously, but essentially, many cultural norms are very, very similar. Evidence is now starting to show that particularly Southeast Asian countries where research has been done, they have a different impression of their own abilities and are much less likely to get into this thing of illusionary superiority. They're actually much more likely to underestimate their skills and that's their cultural norms putting them into that position. So that's worth bearing in mind. And the same thing with memory overlaying itself onto the schema of what's going on on board a boat. Let's let's consider this. I think it's connected. Somebody may or may not be pitch perfect, okay, so that they can just assess whether a note is on pitch or not, and maybe they can actually sing a note exactly on pitch or not. No problem at all. Can they do that in a scale which comes from a country that they're not part of? So if you're pitch perfect in European music style, are you then also pitch perfect in Um, African music or Asian music, does that translate across? Well, I think from what I understand, no, you're not, is the answer to that. You need to have exposure to things. So if you have sailed on a commercial vessel for years and years and years, your memory, your schema, your understanding is overlaid by your experience. And then when you come onto a small yacht or a smaller yacht than you're used to, Does that mean that your experience from way back when allows you to just be an expert in that area? Now, the good thing is about people from that environment is they probably learned their hard skills the old way. So they would probably be big enough and and wise enough to understand that they need to start again at the beginning and relearn things. But it's all too easy for people to point at stuff they did in the past that seems connected and then say, well, that is what gives me my superiority in this situation. At its most basic level, 
this thing of overlaying memory onto what you see can be a massive problem for the sailor. But if you if you deal with it and if you're aware of it and if you start to practice it a little bit, it's actually something you can turn around and it can actually become a really, really important part of your skill set that you have this thing of critical eye. I actually tried to look up critical eye as a, uh, as a concept online and I, I got kind of befuddled by the fact that there seems to be some game called Monster Hunters for which critical eye is some kind of skill or something that you can uh, develop within the game and then there's lots of discussion online as to whether you should do this or buy a new sword or something like that. So my, my research on critical eye, you'll just have to, re- you'll have to rely on the fact of good old fashioned, you know that thing when you can look at something and tell if it's wrong or not. That's what I mean by critical eye rather than a particular uh, psychological effect or, or research paper, okay? For me, critical eye is being able to look at a situation and identify if something is going wrong or it's gonna go wrong. That's what I mean in this situation. There are a lot of things that I do on board the boat which may be slightly outside of what is the accepted practice, but it has become part of my personal practice because I need to make sure that I correctly assess the situation around me and I am able to make a cold slice judgment, an instantaneous judgment, which is correct and is uh, able to save me from unexpected disaster. So how do I do this? Let's look at um, rolling up the jib. When I roll up the jib on the front of the boats that I'm on that have got roller furling uh, jibs and roller furling headsails, I wrap the sheets around and around and around the jib, okay? Now people say to me, you don't need to do that. You just need to bring it until the, the sheets go like just onto the roll and then that's it. Like, why do you wrap the sheets around? It's not necessary. And, and I kind of get into a, a backwards and forwards with people about it. The reason that I do that is because the greatest possible problem that can strike us is that the jib starts to unroll for whatever reason and then starts to get out of control, okay? So when I look at the jib, if the sheets are rolled around it, which is a pretty coarse kind of thing to judge, like sheets wrapped around it, sheets not wrapped around it. If the sheets are wrapped around it, then it's okay. And if the sheets are not wrapped around it, it's unrolling itself, yeah? So if I never ever wrap the sheets around, then I'm trying to judge whether the the sail itself is starting to come undone. Now I will add this to be very specific. Most of the boats that I'm sailing have a number of rolled up headsails and I am probably 50 feet away from them and I'm peering through the night time. Remember half of my time is at sea at night because I'm sailing all night, sailing all day with these long journeys we do. And so it's a cursory glance, it's a cursory glance. It's this little thing all the time of just checking everything out. So it's one of the things that I know from having things start to unroll where you just, you look forward around the staysail and you catch a glimpse of the jib. And what you don't realize is that the jib is starting to unroll itself behind the staysail or the code five starting to unroll itself behind the Genoa or whatever it is. But if I look up there and I see those, um, those little bands where the sheets wrapped around, I know that that's okay. At sunset, and at just past sunrise every day, which is, you know, there's eight or nine hours of darkness in many places that we travel to, particularly higher latitudes, um, there's even more perhaps. At two regular times in the day, I go and walk the deck and I go and look at things and people look at me doing it like, wow, is there a problem? And what I'm doing is I stare at 
areas of the boat where things can go wrong. I stare at the gooseneck, like that film, The Men That Stare at Goats. Well, I'm the man that stares at the gooseneck, right? You stare at the turnbuckles at the bottom of the shroud. You stare at the furling gear at the front. You maybe lie on your back on the foredeck with a pair of binoculars and you stare at the top of the mast. Remember, my masts are between 90 and 100 feet tall normally. And you just look. And what I have found over time is that the cursory glance of going around and kind of checking things out is not enough for your brain to really assess if all these complicated shapes and all these complicated procedures and all these complicated bits of equipment are actually in the combination they should be in or if trouble is brewing. Okay, Just at the gooseneck on the Volvo 70, there are what three reef lines exiting the boom. There's an outhaul. There's a uh, five uh, 2020 BNGs, like big instruments, on the on the rings below the boom. There are uh, halyards going in and out their sheaves. There are, mm, what else is in that area? There's the bolt that goes through the gooseneck, one going horizontally, one going vertically with nuts, set screws, washers, all kinds of stuff there. There's the structure of the boom itself. There's the tack of the mainsail and the lashing that holds it on. There's the bottom of the mast track. There's the actual structure of the mast itself. On the forward edge of that, if I've got a spinnaker set on that boat, not that we really use a spinnaker pole anymore, but there's the heel fitting of the spinnaker pole, which has got its own car, its own lines attached to it. There's a Cunningham there. There's a, you know, there's all sorts of stuff in that area. So what? I'm going to walk past it and assess all of the welds, all of the set screw tensions, all of the lashings, all of the you know the materials if there's any cracks i'm going to do all of that in three or four seconds no that's going to take me a long time because obviously otherwise it's just memory it's my schema of the fact that oh it's the gooseneck there's some stuff and i walk on by and completely miss it so i will walk up and stand and look at the gooseneck for 20 or 30 seconds depends how complicated the thing is in front of me and then I'll move on. Now, the other thing I do in that area is I listen to the mast. And I'm always amazed that people don't do this, okay? What you do is, and it's like being like the, the, the boat whisperer. You're just going to go and have a conversation with the boat. People, again, think I'm like some kind of nut job. Like I'm trying to, like I'm trying to promote my, the mystique of, of, you know, whatever it is I've done. Like, no, I am trying to make sure that I don't fall into the fallacy of thinking I've got it covered because statistically I am more and more and more likely over hundreds of thousands of miles to be the one that something happens to because I just get so like excited about my own <laughs> ability that, you know, I, I let something slip. So I will put my ear up against the mast and close my eyes and I will listen to the mast, right? So what can you hear? You can hear all sorts. You can hear you can hear the waves going under the boat. You can hear the halyards creaking. If you don't have masthead uh, halyard locks, you can hear the, the the rigging creaking inside the mast. You can hear the spreaders. Maybe there's a little bit of tension as they move around. You can hear the you know inside the mast. You have that kind of like woven sock that all the electrical wires go down. You can hear the the, the it's called a snake. You can hear the snake like moving around inside the rig. You can hear the gooseneck. You can hear your van fitting if your van comes down and attaches to the boat. You can maybe hear 
things that shouldn't be there, like little pinging noises as cracks in turnbuckles open and close. You can hear the pen moving on the vang, the pen moving on the gooseneck. You can hear the boom loading up because the outhaul has been wanged on way too tight. You can hear weird crazy noise from some halyard that's wrapped around something else. You can hear all sorts of things. You can do the same on the shrouds and listening to the windward shroud is very, very good for picking up if you've got issues in the spreader routes or in the, the, um, the rigging going up to the top of the mast. You can put your hands onto the halyards and you can feel different halyards and relate them to each other. Obviously, the mast that I'm dealing with maybe a little bit bigger than some of the ones people here be uh, dealing with but i can put my hands if i've got a spinnaker halyard and i've got a staysail set and i've got the 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 halyard that's holding up the main and i've got the i know the outhaul and i can put my hands on the ropes actually physically interact with them so that i can feel if one moves like if the spinnaker halyard i've had this before spinnaker halyards moving and then i can feel a corresponding small movement in the staysail halyard and that's when i realized that during the last time the staysail halyard got pulled out whatever it's been reefed down the mast and it's wrapped around the spinnaker halyard so by physically interacting with stuff and looking at stuff and staring at stuff i have allowed myself over time to a develop a critical eye through this physical process of looking hard but also to give myself the space to recognize the psychological processes that are going on behind a lot of what goes on in everyday life that i.e. the memory is overlaying things and try and circumvent it to keep myself safer. I do this sometimes when I'm um, in and about the uh, just normal everyday life. A car drives past me and I will try and come up with a mnemonic quickly that reminds me what that number plate is afterwards. All right. Um, I was I was in the military for a very short period of time and um, we did a little bit of security work and a couple of these little techniques were passed to me by the people that trained us at that time. Another one is that a person walks past you, you look at their face and then you think of three things that can move somebody you know, like really know, towards looking like that person you just looked at. Okay, so I could think, um, guy walks past me and I think he looks a bit like Steve Martin, but his hair's black, his uh, eyes are blue, and he has a beard. Okay, now what use is this? The use is the fact that if you were ever asked to describe who that person was, you don't have to think about who the person was, you have to just remember three things. Well, he looks like Steve Martin, but he's got black hair, he's got uh, a beard, and his eyes are blue. And that's gonna put you in the right ballpark. So it's a great technique for people that are trying to be observant about things. What about if you, um, came out on deck and you saw a red light in the sky. Now I've actually had this happen once before. I was sailing between Bermuda, no sorry, between Antigua and Bermuda on the Antigua Bermuda race. And I was driving along and as uh, I looked over to starboard, we were on starboard tack, was it? Yeah, starboard tack and going north. And I looked out to starboard and I saw a red light and I said to the crew, oh, here comes the competition, thinking that what I was looking at was a masthead light, it's nighttime, a, a poor masthead light of a boat crossing it. Now, my immediate instinct is to take a bearing of that boat, because if the light goes off, if the spinnaker goes in front of it un, with no trimming light, no nothing, if uh, the light goes off, if I can't find them because of whatever, I will always do something, even if it's like it's above that stanchion, it's behind Bob's head when I stand here, it's on this, and I quickly looked at the compass bearing, 
and, and related it to where it was angled to the boat and it disappeared. I went, oh, that's weird. Like, so I'm immediately getting very worried now because it's either I've got a boat on port, uh, you know, coming, coming at me from a position where I may well have to dip them or give way or whatever. Remember, nighttime, we don't uh, race at nighttime. We just go by international coal regs, right? So I've got a red light here. I may well have to get out of its way. And I said to him, it's either a red masthead light, this is, I said to the crew, or it's a flare. Now, at that moment, my instinct to kind of like reference this thing to my world became very, very useful. Because then what I did is I kept looking down that compass heading. The boat moved forward, which means my referencing of where it was on the deck was no use. But the compass heading pretty, stayed pretty much the same. And I kept looking and kept looking and kept looking. After five minutes, I saw one go up. It was a flare and it was a problem. There was someone in distress. And uh, we were able then to tack over and start heading towards them. Luckily, another competitor was closer and dealt with it. But from that, we never got any other information at the time. We never heard anything else on VHF. We didn't hear a thing, right? But I took a reference as to where they were at that moment. I made a judgment about how high in the sky the flare was and how likely it was that the flare uh, how high the flare had likely gone. And when we did actually pass through the area, we tacked twice over the next couple of hours to get to roughly the area. And we actually passed within five miles of where the incident had happened, which meant that if the vessel had still been afloat, unfortunately the vessel did sink, although all, uh, all, all uh, the people on board were, were saved. But um, had that been an ongoing situation, we actually would have been within a horizon of, of seeing them and then being able to go to them. It, we actually got to the area by dawn. But we passed within five miles based on me getting that instant reference and then doubling down by seeing it a second time. And then we, we tacked over and started heading towards that position and tacked again to go north and, and try and complete the uh, maneuver. But that ability to see things that's around you, to make judgments, is something that needs to be practiced and it needs to be taken seriously. And you need to understand where the information you have comes from and the validity of the person that's giving it to you. And I would say that the way of doing this is, is simple as you go through to savings. We want to bring this back finally to like, what's the practical advice here? The practical advice is when anybody's ever telling you something, about sailing or anything else. If they're really like getting into one camp on stuff, you have to like start to understand this is like an almost tribal obsession with what's going on. And unless it's something like put your seatbelt on in the car, which is very clearly, or, you know, social distancing during COVID-19, or you can't smoke in here, this is a surgery or something like that. Unless it's something like that, if it's just some aspect of like seamanship or a little thing and they're getting really, really up on their like soapbox about it, it's quite likely that that person is on the wrong side of the Dunning-Kruger effect. <laughs> they are climbing or at the pinnacle of their personal Mount Stupid and um, they may not have the background, the experience to understand the vastness of this, this area of expertise and their small part in it. They may be overestimating themselves and they may have this um this feeling that you know where they're at this this selective bias in what they're doing that they're just selecting what they know about it and ignoring the fact that um if their feeling of superiority is correct then you know they are in a situation where uh, they are better than everybody else and everybody else thinks they're better than the average and you know it's just an impossible uh, statistical situation. We can't all be better than the average, otherwise there is no average. To to just underline this before I finish up, the the guys, um, Dave Dunning and uh, oh now what's his what's his name? I've got to get my uh, little bit of uh, 
research I've got here, Justin, Justin Kruger, yeah. Um, when they uh, did their thing, this is where they came out, right? Let me read this. The concept of this uh, Dunning-Kruger effect is based on this 1999 paper by Cornell University. And they, Dunning and Kruger tested participants on their logic, grammar, and sense of humor and found that those who performed in the bottom quartile rated their skills far above average. For example, those in the 12th percentile, that means the lower 12% of what's going on, self-rated their expertise to be on average in the 62nd percentile, which means that they think they are better than 62% of the people that were tested. That's petrifying, right? <laughs> so the people, and the problem is the fact that, well, and I'll, I'll leave you with this one particular comment here from Dave Dunning. And he says, those with limited knowledge in a domain suffer a dual burden. Not only do they reach mistaken conclusions and make regrettable errors, but their incompetence robs them of the ability to realize it. <laughs> so I would say this, I would say when you're, doing your sailing, you're out on the water, you've got to stay, and it's kind of connected to that thing of no more shouting that we were discussing about in a previous uh, podcast, but you have to allow that there are other ways of doing things, and it doesn't, you don't have to encamp yourself. You have to understand that there may be things that you don't know about the area you're in. It may be that you do know about it, but how you present it is going to be very important for whether people pick it up or not. In your own sailing and your own uh, seamanship, you have to really like analyze, okay, where did I get this from? What's my perception of this? And um, are there other ways of doing it? You have to be transparent and open and, and try and avoid that little Hitler thing or <laughs> whoops, that little Napoleon thing of, it depends how you do it, of like, no, I'm right, I'm right. This is the way of doing it. I, I've not been assailed by that kind of person very much since I kind of did the round the world thing. So I think then people... Well, then I go the other way. Then no one wants me to go sailing with them and nobody um, like will ask me a question because they think I'm going to think they're stupid or something like that. There's all these like weird biases going on which don't exist. They just exist like in people's heads. But to navigate safely through all this, I think it's key that we are aware of how much of memory is coloring what we see around us, how much of incorrect assumption and belief and knowledge on things is coloring what we do each day. And is there a new way and a better way of doing things? Is there a more concentrated way that we can come at something and see how to do it better or catch something before it goes wrong? And I think being aware of your own metacognition as a sailor can make you a much more uh, safe sailor, can make you a much better tutor to other people, and it can save you from having that uh, pinnacle experience at the top of Mount Stupid where you come tumbling down the other side and realize, uh-oh, I actually don't know what I'm doing. So <laughs> I hope this was interesting to listen to. It was interesting for me to try and present this, and I hope you'll forgive me for not being a, uh, a science educator. I'm trying to put forward not only like my, my personal feeling. What's my personal feeling? This? My personal feeling is that some people talk a lot of crap, and we need to be very careful that we don't listen to them and get dragged into the mire with them. That's what I think. I think that a lot of people wander around on their deck and don't see what it is that's right in front of them. That's my dad taught me to see. I always say my dad taught me to see and my mother taught me to listen. My dad, when we work in the, in the garage, he, I, he'd say to me, okay, what's wrong with this engine? And the engine would be running in the car and you could hear it kicking and popping and doing whatever. And I'd you know, I'd be looking at it and looking at it and I'd say, I don't know. He'd say, look at what you're seeing. 
okay, which is a very North of England way of describing something. Grammatically, I think we could probably have a bit of a chat with him, but look at what you're seeing is a very, very important lesson, okay? And my mother, maybe she didn't have some catchphrase for it, but she said you must always listen very carefully to what's going on around you, both the good of it and the, and the ill of it. And the point being that just because someone's shouting doesn't mean they're right. Just because someone's talking with authority on something doesn't mean they're right. As my dad would say, you've got to look at things and you've got to be very clear about what you're seeing and what that adds up to. And I think they're almost two sides of the same coin of awareness. Um, and I hope that by being mindful of those things, um, as always, that you can get increased safety in what you're doing. You can learn and move forward and, and get new excitement and new enjoyment from your sailing. And you know, being the internal student, continuing to have that feverish excitement to learn new things. Every time I see like some old 1950s seamanship book or learn to sail, I found a book the other day, which was, it was called Learn to Drive, right? It's from the 1950s, Learn to Drive. Even your wife can learn. That's what it said on the front of it. You're like, oh my God. But, you know, he was talking in that book about using the gears to slow down the car because brakes are not so good. And it's like, okay, yeah, I know how to do that because I'm the best driver in the world. But it's good to remember the fact that, oh yeah, you know what? These automatic cars, like if the, uh, if the brakes do fail, like how am I going to slow that down? There's always something you can get out of, even things that you already know about. There is no prestige in playing the role of the person uh, who knows it all. This illusionary superiority. There's nothing in it. You're just on the way to your first, second, third, fourth, whatever it is, ascent of Mount Stupid before you realize you've got to absorb it all and you've got to use it all to be as safe and have as much fun from your sailing as possible. All right. Well, whew, I cannot go much further because... Uh, we're already past our time by five minutes. I like to try and keep these to an hour and 15 minutes. My hands are cold. It's, uh, it's what is it? It's 10 o'clock at night and uh, it's getting cold here in the barn, but um, days are getting longer and warmer here in Nova Scotia. So I was excited to discover that the sun is now looking to crest the horizon at uh, around 5.30 here now and not down till 8.30. And that is pretty good news. Although no one seems to have told the temperature of this change because it's still... Uh, as I read the thermometer here, five and a half degrees in here. So <laughs> I'm going to go inside and have a cup of coffee. I hope that wherever you are, you are safe and that you are sound and that you are continuing to get the very best, if you can, from this weird situation we are all in. If you're listening to this in the future, we are all at the moment experiencing COVID-19 lockdown, which has changed a lot of our lives just at the moment. I think many places I heard today, Germany and Holland here in Canada, we've got some little relief from that, some things opening up, some recreational boating even going on. So that's pretty exciting. Always keep those negative thoughts pushed to one side. You are the harbor master of your mind. Focus on what's ahead. Find that silver lining in things. Engineer a silver lining if you have to. And I look forward to speaking to you all in the next one. Cheers.